This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear In These Islands by Shirley Hazard, which was published in The New Yorker in June of 1990. In becoming a daughter, she had not relinquished personality. She herself began now to be beautiful. The gray hair in a coil, the thoughtful brow, and pliant wrist. The story was chosen by Lauren Groff, who's published three novels, including most recently Fates and Furies, which came out in 2015. Hi, Lauren. Hi. So what is your uh, history as a reader of Shirley Hazard? How did you come to her work? I have loved Shirley Hazard for many, many years. The Transit of Venus is my favorite of her books, and I think it's probably one of the great books of the 20th century. Um, And she just doesn't get read as often as I believe she should be. All of her books are really good, but The Transit of Venus just blows everything else out of the water. (laughs) And what, what is it about The Transit of Venus? She's so good at so many things. I mean, I feel like she's the direct descendant of Henry James in some ways. Um, She writes very much about boiling passions underneath a lot of restraint. She uses really long and sometimes abstract language, but it's always very clear and lucid. She's able to write in terms of scale in a way that almost nobody is able to write. I mean, she'll she'll pinpoint down to a minute, very human... Um, uh, detail and then sort of expand sort of like geologic time. I mean, she's so good at so many things. But The Transit of Venus is just this gorgeous, tragic love story. Um, And I read it, you know, once a year. (laughs) When did you first read it? God, I don't even know. Um, Grad school, I believe. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure. All that time was very hazy. (laughs) Why do you think that people don't read her more? You know, I think she had two famous books. Um, In These Islands is uh, an excerpt from um, The Great Fire, which won the National Book Award. But I think that um, it's harder for her because she wrote only two great books and not that many books. I mean, she was for a long time. um, She worked for the U.N., and she lived in New York and uh, Italy. I mean, she was from Australia. She lived all over the world. She was friends with Graham Greene. I mean, she had this really sort of glamorous life. Um, but um, she, she didn't write all that many books. She had many, many stories in The New Yorker, however. Yeah. She also had a, a long gap between The Transit of Venus and The Great Fire. Um, I think something like 20 years between novels. And maybe that was maybe people sort of forgot it's possible. It's sad to think about, but yeah, I think that, that might have been why. <laughs> keep keep your novels coming out, you know. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, as you said, uh, in these islands was published as a story in the magazine in 1990, um, but along with another story that ran in the magazine in '87, it it became part of her novel, The Great Fire, which came out in 2003. Do you think that the story holds up out of context, independently of the book? You know, I just reread uh, The Great Fire for for this purpose, and I actually think it is a stronger story alone on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you can sort of see uh, the very gentle gradations in tone that she's using, which it's a little bit more difficult when it's surrounded by other material in the book. So I actually find it um, just immensely moving on its own, and I thought that it was just a tremendously beautiful, gentle story. Mm-hmm. 
Well, the story is set in New Zealand in 1949, and its characters are sort of living in the shadow of both world wars. Do you think that there's anything else people should should know about it before they hear it? They should be aware that there are some very long sentences. <laughs> but uh, no, some I long, think it, difficult it's to read sentences. long, difficult to read sentences. But I actually think that it's fairly um, self-explanatory. All right, great. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Lauren Groff reading In These Islands by Shirley Hazard. In These Islands. In the winter of 1949, in the Antipodes, Julia Bogle wrote to her lover, We are on a height here with mist in the mornings. The house is large, humid, sunless. The garden, damper still, is shaded by trees, chiefly beech, and enclosed against the incessant wind by a hedge of yews. No flower beds, but many plants and bushes of the cool flowering kind, fuchsia, hydrangea. Camellias have bloomed since we arrived in streaks of color such as you never saw. There are ferns and bunchy groves where violets and lily of the valley will appear when September comes round. On the north, with some sun, a wisteria in woolly bud is strangling a derelict arbor. All this gets the attention of Jimsy from Dumfries, who does the neighborhood gardens and also of Miss Fry, who occasionally comes to sew for my mother and to make expert repairs to the moldered curtains, lace mats, furniture, and even carpets of the absent owners. Miss Fry brings a hush. Swift at her work, infinitely polite, she observes us, but of herself tells nothing. A dozen ready sources inform us, however, that her name is Eleanor, that she speaks French, which makes her a prodigy in this land, and that she lost her fiancé in 1914. She is nearing 60 and lives with widowed mum in Kilburn, a suburb adjoining ours. Miss Fry has a good face, handsome yet somehow bare, perhaps from giving so much unreciprocated attention. Spare also in build, well-dressed always in one or the other of two costumes, as they're called, jacket, skirt, and blouse of discreet and fry-like tones. Reading over, she saw that she had been too knowing about Eleanor Fry and added, What she brings is not hush, but calm. She is the best thing that happens. On Sunday afternoons, writing her letter, Julia Bogle herself grew calm and repossessed of powers. It was the sole occasion of her exile, the hour of affinities preserved from and for another life. Existence, distilled in that exercise, was emblematic in its materials. A pad of blue imported paper, a good black Parker pen, the envelopes marked air for freedom on which she wrote his name, and the tiny Florentine leather box with its flutter of New Zealand stamps. If the incidents of intervening days were weighed and even experienced for possible recounting in the letter, that was less for their interest than as an opportunity for artistry, to demonstrate that a girl of 18 helplessly transported to the last place on earth might yet write what an eminent man would read with pleasure in a self-sufficient northern metropolis at the heart of the great world. The love that moved her then became nearly joyful, subsumed as it was into inspiration. The need for cleverness stood guard over a more reckless impulse toward simplicity. Miss Fry's time was afternoon. It was Julia who prepared the tea tray and carried it to where Miss Fry, in an overall of ochre linen, sat at her work. Always the small, circular black tin tray, the white and gold Rockingham cup, 
and two ginger snaps, poised like coins on the saucer. Miss Fry, who said, Thank you, how kind, as the tray arrived, and thank you, delicious, when it was removed, one day looked up over a porcelain rim with receptivity. Additional words came to be exchanged, although never, as the weeks wore on, very many words at one time, for Eleanor Fry dealt with friendship as with some quick creature, lizard or leveret, that might dart from an obtrusive hand. Miss Fry has invited me. Next Sunday at four, while my parents are still at the roast lamb, I make my way to Nightingale Road. Her mother is said to be a personality, although that here at Wellington might signify the least quiver of animation. Did I tell you? knowing she had not, that I wore my rose-colored coat in the town and was stared at? In these islands where virtue begins with self-effacement, any sign of life is dangerously flashy. Decent persons are home by six when the streets of the capital fall silent. Despite this, there is, maddeningly, enough true decency to make dislike impossible. On the Sunday, Julia set out in small rain, wearing a Macintosh and stout shoes that could draw no glance. Devoid of glances, suburban streets undulated on a Jurassic rise. No car or person passed. There was the indoor bark of a bored dog and a crystal shake of drops from low branches. Weatherboard houses stood back from the footpath, insubstantial. You might have displaced them with the flat of one hand. Roofs of corrugated iron had been painted dully red. Behind low palings or a hedge of box gardens laid out like military grids were unlikely to grow riotous with summer. Air of uninhabited freshness rushed at curves and inclines with its southern chill. There was, too, a southward vision of cold sea and of the distant gorse-grown hills that shaped the bay. Across the strait and beyond the flung skein of farther land, the sole matter of consequence was the South Pole, to whose white magnet the nation was drawn, even while directing its thoughts elsewhere. In the large setting, the city was small, rickety, irrelevant, unresponsive to destiny. And the girl saw herself creeping, Lilliputian, over the disregarded topography of the lower globe, walking to Kelburn with no expectation of change. She was soon dreaming once more the only possible dream. Near Nightingale Road, a cyclist saluted her. This waterproofed boy, who steadied a basket precious between handlebars, was Sid Briggs, whose parents helped with dinners. Cooking and serving, the Briggses also rented out for an evening not only tableware, but, for a set fee, a centerpiece of hothouse fruit that could be returned next day with additional payment for items consumed by any inconsiderate or vindictive guest. The grapes snipped and dusted might do another round or two, while a softening of pears or peaches could be disguised by greenery. As to parties, the father, in youth a boxer, and known yet as Tiger Briggs, would arrive early to set up drinks, while Sid in the kitchen deftly chopped and spread. It was Mrs. Briggs, however, who ran the show, gave tongue, and cultivated her legend. Of short, pouting build, her liveliness ever within bounds, she had sized up the situation and was content to be a character, who knew at the grander gatherings what the Prime Minister would drink, and was mindful of the ulcer of the High Commissioner, who rallied to the greetings of Sir Keith or Sir Patrick, but never quite took a liberty, liberty being to her of no importance. 
A small measure of power, benign but attestable, was what she was after in her black rayon dress, apron scalloped in organdy, and cuffs white as the paws of some immaculate pet. At home she recounted to her men what she had heard and overheard and reigned in consequence. At number 12, Julia pushed a solid gate. A roof was visible above old trees. Shrubs in prodigious bloom gave place to a cloud of spring flowers. The house was slate blue and otherwise distinctive, being large and high with fretted woodwork above the eaves. Upstairs and down, bay windows shone like mirrors, displaying curtains of white gauze. And Miss Fry was in the doorway, mildly smiling and extending her mild hand. The girl gave up coat and umbrella. They're not really wet. Because she had not opened the umbrella, her hair hung flat and dark on her shoulders. At such moments, Julia Bogle recovered her youth, which had been overwhelmed by her adult sorrows, and was shy. Miss Fry, however, would not assume authority as people are apt to do on their own ground, and they were thus briefly immobilized. The living room smelt of freesias and floor wax. Charcoal briquettes the size of duck eggs were burning in the grate. There was expansiveness, quite free of that cut crystal and walnut veneer on which the neighborhood liked to insist. Chairs, a desk, a sofa, all aged and admirable, came clearly from the grate elsewhere. There was a large rug from the Indies. A pair of glazed cases held the leather colors of old books. In a farther room, on open shelves, books lined a wall. Everything appeared to be in an agreeable state of use. On a table, a lamp was lit against the dark day, and overhead, a glass disc hung from three bright chains. You found Nightingale Road. Mrs. Fry had come, startling out of a chair. Her daughter explained, Mother tends to materialize. So you've come to enliven us. Julia said, That wasn't made a condition of acceptance. It is understood. Mrs. Fry was a straight stem flowering into a nimbus of white hair. When she sat, her dark dress spread on sofa cushions that were the texture of fine sand. Beauty, long drained of its erotic appeal, had remained a habit. She went on, Whoever comes here from the outer world brings novelty. Above all, a young person and pretty. Mother, you're perhaps too personal. Miss Fry had taken a workbasket on her lap. In becoming a daughter, she had not relinquished personality. She herself began now to be beautiful, the gray hair in a coil, the thoughtful brow and pliant wrist. You have fine eyes, which is lucky because the eyes last. Mrs. Fry's own dark eyes, now soft, now bright, had lasted. I have my father's eyes. He was Bishop of Wellington. My parents came out by reason of his appointment. It was four months, then from Britain on the sea. She said, like your own parents, they came for a fixed term but life will not always abide by such arrangements. Both women had low, clear speech, unhesitating. My father had this house built to his taste, taste not being otherwise procurable. There were woods here then. We were in countryside. I remember on our land a great stand of cowrie that was felled when I was seven to make houses. Buildings were all of wood at that time, even in the town, for fear of the earthquakes. Strangely, it was only after the great earthquake at Napier, not 20 years ago, that they started in earnest with their concrete and bricks. Men, she said, feel compelled to test their fate, to learn once and for all who is master. Where we are, said the girl, it's mainly beach. 
native birch, as they call it. I don't know why. Nothophagus. Miss Fry was stitching a geometrical design, blood red, on a fold of canvas. The road itself was made after we came, and named, of course, for the heroine rather than the bird. Miss Nightingale, then, was still living, but died mercifully just before the Great War. Eleanor is named for her, Eleanor Florence. Miss Fry observed that the name had been current in past ages, but had lapsed for a time. It was revived in the last century by English travelers to Italy. Such gestures were in fashion. Shelley, too, gave the name of Florence to a son born there. She drew new silk from a crimson twist. I was born upstairs, said Mrs. Fry, taking up her own thread, in the room over this. The house had been intended as a second residence for the bishop, but my father loved it, and when his term was out, he arranged to buy. We stayed on. My poor mother was dying of tuberculosis and could not undertake the journey home. After her death, my father and I set sail, and the house was rented for many years. She said, Eleanor is impatient, having heard it all. She doesn't look impatient. And I'm not, said Miss Fry, but we'll bring the tea. Sometimes, she says, Mother, don't start on the memories. Only when the theme is painful to either or both of us. The daughter had laid down her work. There's Indian, of course, but we have excellent China. Thank you, China. When Miss Fry had gone, her mother remarked, Why not tell one's story? There are so few stories here, or perhaps a fear of telling. I myself forget much of the 40 years I spent in England after my marriage, and all that time I came here only twice. The voyage was so long, whether by the Red Sea or the Cape Route, as it is still. On the waterfront, there was the office of the Shaw-Saville line. In a window on the street, black hull and red funnels made their stately getaway. People went in to get brochures, to inquire, to embellish the fantasy. Durban, Cape Town, Las Palmas, the stations of pilgrimage were known by heart to all the nation. Julia Bogle was thinking, so long, so far. Like others before her, she began to doubt that she would ever leave. Mrs. Fry said, don't grieve. You will change it all. Luck is always welcome, but one must make the great changes for oneself or it doesn't amount to destiny. On this word, the house fell profoundly silent, as it one day would without her. In the distant kitchen, Eleanor Fry made no sign. The old woman said, Some possibilities are open to you. What is terrible is to be quite helpless under events, as in those wars. Over the mantel, there was a fine picture, a tall seascape that was mostly sky. Julia was looking up at this with unblinking eyes, which, at the sound of kindness, had filled with tears. I made the trip alone soon after I was widowed. That was early in 1914. The year having become an epoch, and terrible, one forgets that it was largely passed in peace. Eleanor was in the south of France. She had fallen in love with a Frenchman, a landowner from the Var, and his parents said, stay, so she remained. A decrepit old house they had, the Ma, as they call it, handsome but not comfortable, like the man himself. He was killed that October at the Ypres salient, and Eleanor stayed on in the Var. Eleanor Fry came back, impassive, with a large teak tray. How good, Eleanor, the smell of that tea. It must be a new caddy. 
Miss Fry, seated, told Julia, there's an importer, the only one put in her mother, on Custom House Key upstairs in a room without windows. He is quite concealed. Eleanor found him through those people who rent out fruit and flowers, the Briggses. They all smiled. This man has pâté, spices, and interesting preserves. Small pleasures must diffuse themselves by stealth here. The Scots heritage is strong, mortification of flesh and spirit. Mother, surely an exaggeration. I am half Scots myself and may say so. My mother was a Macpherson from Fife. How good these patties are, Eleanor. Julia said, everything's good. A feast, high tea. My dear, not quite. High tea, to be correct, must include meat, pressed tongue at the very least, or smoked fish. It should include, we used to say, that which has drawn breath. Ham sandwiches can scarcely qualify, still less sardines. Our present cakes, too, are of a somewhat frivolous kind for a true high tea. All are made by Eleanor, with the exception of the frothy one concocted by her own Italian maid and called zuppa inglese, said to be modeled on trifle, if one blob may serve as model for another. Eleanor, now we need hot water. When her daughter had departed, the old woman went on, to have been on earth merely during the First World War is to have experienced hell. Afterwards, everywhere, the excruciating sense of mourning. In France, when I would visit Eleanor in her slavery down in the Var, it seemed nearly audible, a world in tears. It was that, I dare say, set me to thinking of coming home, not to this country, but to this house, which in memory had remained a shelter. I am saying, Eleanor, that I put it to you in 1927. Would you come with me? It was a venture, said Eleanor, returning. I was ready for something of the kind. Of the kind, her mother exclaimed. A removal to New Zealand has no kindred. She said, Eleanor had, however, nothing to lose but the drudgery of staying where she was. I had learned to be of use. For all her composure, it was not difficult, in Eleanor's case, to imagine wild weeping. She had remade that house in France, rugs, furniture, the very pictures retrieved from ancient squalor. Garden, orchard, even pig pen had become beautiful. There was an allée of indescribable romance where peacocks walked at evening going up at dusk to roost in the cedars. I had nothing to do with that. There were peacocks long before my time. The daughter reached again for her work, extending the smooth arm that had carried swill to pigs. I never changed the growth of that path, which was sublime. As to the rest, the work was a satisfaction. She had learned to care for things, some emphasis on the word. For their own sake, said Eleanor, not from acquisitiveness. The mother gestured grandly. It was the first such movement of her hands. Everything here is of her creation, indoors and out, even my dress, fingering a fold. Repair especially is her genius. I enjoy simply the civility of what is well made. It is the need to love, said the mother. Balked of love, women will turn to religion, to pets or plants, to things inanimate. Eleanor's generation was cut off from loving by the great war. Thy sword hath made women childless, says the Bible. Miss Fry had the sewing box on her lap. Afterwards, in the dreadful aftermath, one found these women teaching in the schools working in hospital wards. For some, perhaps, life even gained in meaning. They were spared certain other cruelties. 
but that is a hypothesis, whereas the denial of love is a fact. But the men, said Julia, it was the men who died. They were deluded, said Eleanor Fry, by their own desire for motion. These outermost lands in particular promised no other experience, offered no other escape. They did not call it death, they called it action. Killed in action. This was Mrs. Fry. The girl said, It's in Thucydides that the young men longed to see far places and couldn't believe they might die. Julia, who had been indistinct, was recovering line and color. Her hair, having dried, fell loose and fair. She looked more like herself, a self that was yet to be. All the youth of Athens was drawing the map of Sicily on the ground. In imagination, they were already conquerors. At that moment, all three women were passive, relieved by immemorial truth. Mrs. Fry said, but languidly, in their thoughts, all men are conquerors. Mother and daughter were breathing in quiet sighs. They were thinking the Sicilian expedition, the Dardanelle, the Somme. While the girl wondered, when shall I sail? And in her mind sketched the map of the world. The old lady, with a second gesture, seemed to indicate the heavens. Eleanor Fry said, a tremor. Overhead, the lamp swung lightly on three chains. In the grate, the white-hot eggs collapsed in ash. The vibration, infinitesimal but absolute, passed through the room and on, on through all the decorous suburbs, shivering some plaster, fracturing an ornament or two, and bringing down, in a parlor on Thompson Street, a dim painting of Mount Egmont. Miss Fry asked, Shall I clear away? I should like something more, said her mother, but cannot think what it would be. As the dishes were assembled, she went on, We might read the passage this evening, Eleanor, in Thucydides. Having closed her eyes as if to doze, she suddenly said, They are more frequent this year, in reference to the tremor. Walking home in rain, Julia Bogle thought, I didn't enliven them. It was all the other way. She went over it in thought, the world of women, the lovely room, and how the daughter held her own with the swift mother. Although the bishop had been commended, husband and father had gone unmentioned. These lives had been suspended in the legendary summer of 1914. But Mrs. Fry had laughed with the laugh of a merry girl, and Eleanor had used the word sublime. When Eleanor Fry put away the dishes, she sat again in her chair. Her mother said, Let us not read tonight, after all, about the Sicilian expedition. And the daughter, in agreement, took up her work from habit. Later, however, she sat with idle hands and thought of matters pure or terrible that were known to her alone, and of how, at evening, the peacocks parading in the allée were led by the eldest, the doyenne, who would one day be supplanted in a duel to the death. When they roused themselves to go upstairs, as they had done at that hour for more than twenty years, Mrs. Fry said, Perhaps at this moment Julia is writing a love letter. I hope so, said Eleanor Fry. That was Lauren Groff reading In These Islands by Shirley Hazard. The story appeared in The New Yorker in June of 1990 and became part of Hazard's novel The Great Fire, which was published in 2003. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. 
Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Lauren, the story begins with this very long paragraph of scene setting, and it's Julia sort of describing her her damp, sunless surroundings with this, you know, wisteria strangling the arbor and the moldering curtains. Do, do you think there's a reason that we meet Julia first through her epistolary voice, this sort of letter to her lover where she's trying to impress him, and and even she acknowledges she's she's going a bit far with it? I think there are a lot of reasons. Um, one of them is very much, a, this is a story a lot about um, women as they age. And these three women have, are, are variations on a theme in, in a certain way, in the way that she, she uses other variations upon a theme in the story. And we need to hear Julia as she is as a, an 18-year-old. She's young. Um, and all she is, is is this bundle of yearning to be back with her older lover um, in all the way across the world in London. So uh, I, I think it's really important that we are grounded in the beginning in the voice of this young girl before we sort of explode into the, the life of these two other women who in many ways parallel her own um, exile and her, her own um, grief at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, Miss Fry's fiancé, died 30 years or 35 years before the story takes place when she was not very much older than Julia is now and Julia's living at a distance from her lover. Do you think that's part of what draws them to each other? I think they both feel like misfits. I mean, they both are. Um, Julia is, uh, she considers herself perhaps maybe better than the people around her, even though there's a lot of warmth um, to them. But she, she, she sticks out. She wore a pink coat. Um, and that made people <laughs> look at her as funny. You know, it was very, just on, on that line, it was very interesting because I looked at the, at the book version, and in the book version she's wearing a green coat. Right. And it's, it's a very, <laughs> it's a dingy, like, um, an American gave it to her. It's this, like, uh, an American military man, so it's this dingy sort of olive green coat. But it's much, much brighter in the story. Um, <laughs> Here it's rose-colored. Yeah, which, I, you know, I, there's part of me that likes it better as a rose-colored coat. Um, mm -hmm. It just shows her youth, right? Her absolute sort of pure youth um, in, in a way that in the book she, she's written almost as an old soul. Um, I believe it's, it's all incredibly intentional. I think Shirley Hazard um, was layering in this story, and she, she built this story almost um, geologically, sort of with a layer below that sort of slowly r revealed itself again, like an earthquake sort of uh, um, mm -hmm. opens up the, the earth and pushes the layers um, from beneath to the surface. I think that's what she was doing in this. Well, it's interesting because, you know, Juliet 
the title comes from that line, in these islands, virtue begins with self-effacement and any sign of life is flashy. And Julia is certainly on the side of flashy in that, that rose-colored coat and so on. Miss Fry, Eleanor, is the opposite of flashy. You know, she's described as very sort of prim in her, her fry-colored uh, costumes. And yet Julia is still drawn to her. What, what is that attraction? Well, her past is flashy. You know, mm-hmm. I, her, Eleanor's her past is um, a grand love story. I mean, she was, you know, her herself, she was a doyenne of this um, country house that she put back into shape, and she lived in France, and nobody speaks French in Wellington, apparently. And Julia herself <laughs> does speak French because she's uh, highly educated for her age. So she, she just sees someone who else who has lived. And even though Eleanor Fry is very quiet and very meek, that story follows her around. I mean, uh, Julian knows it, and she's relatively new to the area. So this is a story that people have told about Miss Fry uh, throughout her life. It's followed her around. Um, so she does stand out. She is flashy in, in terms of her history. Yeah, though she's lived 35 years since then, um, sewing and living <laughs> yeah. with her mother and, and living a very quiet, guarded existence. Is she a kind of cautionary tale for Julia? I don't think so. I actually think that she, well, maybe, maybe she is, because at the very end, the very last sentence is, you know, Eleanor Fry saying, I hope she's writing a love letter. I hope, you know, this this young girl is deep in her own story of love. So in that sense, perhaps, but I, 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 do, I see it as a perhaps more subtle thing than that, um, more subtle than a cautionary tale, something closer to sort of a vision of how to survive a love story that didn't come out the way that you wanted it to, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you think? Well, it's interesting because it's quite clear that Julia does not want to end up like Miss Fry. Um, she doesn't want her love story to go that to go that way. On the other hand, she's very interested. Yeah, you know, she's very intrigued by what this woman's existence has been. And when you hear Eleanor's mother, Mrs. Fry, describe it and say, you know, that this loss made her um, learn to care for things. Uh, You know, she says repair especially is her genius. Mm. Uh, She's saying that in an approving way. I don't know if we're supposed to approve or not. What do you think? Yeah, I think, um, again, Shirley Hazard has about 18 different things going on. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're supposed to love Miss Fry um, without wanting Julia to end up like her, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think um, Mrs. Fry decides to tell Julia her, her basically her whole life story? What what is she trying to tell her with that? Mm. She she could be telling her anything. I'm trying to to really assess why. I'm I'm not sure. I think you know for the in terms of the story, we need to know the parallels um, between the three women. Um, but also, uh, there's there's a lot in here about exile, about yearning, about how that that makes people, makes women in particular be who they are because the men go off into action and the women themselves are just uh, they're they're stuck elsewhere, right? They're, they're I guess not victims of circumstance, but a lot of times they they don't have a lot of agency in in where they go, or at least Miss Fry and Mrs. Fry didn't. There's this interesting passage in The Great Fire um, early on in the book where Shirley Hazard writes, uh, women's yearnings had scarcely featured, being presumably of mating and giving birth. Their purpose had been supplied to them from the first, their lot. 
A woman who broke ranks was ostracized by other women, rocking the boat instead of the cradle. And I find that such an interesting idea when projected back onto this story. Eleanor Fry, in her own life, did, for a long time, um, rock the boat. I mean, she didn't have a baby, right, with her husband. He died too soon. And then she came home almost in disgrace. So I think the mother was just telling this young, heartbroken girl that uh, there is no war on. She can change her fate in, in a certain way, in the way that um, her daughter and she were not necessarily able to. I'm not sure, though. Yeah. I mean, she's saying, she, she does sort of describe what happened to women of Eleanor's generation and that they, all the men died. They had no men to love. They didn't do anything. They couldn't, they, they couldn't marry. They couldn't have children like as Eleanor didn't. Right. And they were kind of diverted or sort of shunted off into these caring professions like teaching and nursing. They had to put their their impulse to love into that. And Eleanor put it into, you know, repairing things and fixing up the, the French estate or fixing up everyone's homes in, in Wellington. We come to back to a reflection, too. They live on Nightingale Road, and, um, fl- and it was named after the heroine, Florence Nightingale, who put her attention into you know, other people, right? She, she spent her life caring for other people. And it seems almost as though this is not an alternative model of, of womanhood, um, right? Uh, in, a, in a certain way. Um, the, she's just showing her an alternative model of womanhood. Yeah, though I think she's Mrs. Fry is implying that this is sort of sad. Um, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, that Julia realizes at the end that no mention was made of Mrs. Fry's husband, who presumably was where where she put her love. You know, she talks about her father, the bishop, but she doesn't talk about her husband. Right. And we don't know what happened to him, or <laughs> you know, he's right. just sort of missing in action here. Um, so perhaps he was lost young as well, and I'm not sure. Or perhaps, you know, Mrs. Fry had done her duty. By <laughs> it's terrible to think about. Um, I don't think Shirley Hazard ever would have uh, promoted that idea. It's not a world of men. It's a world of women. And, and Julia thinks that as she's walking home, she's thinking about this beautiful, you know, neat very comfortable world of women she had just come through and the earthquake that's always threatening underneath everything, the great wars that are sort of at the edges of thought. And they just come through a great war. They just come through World War II, right? So so they're all smarting in that sense also. Yeah. Th- this story is so fascinating and complex, and I think that one could spend probably two months talking about it and trying to suss out the very depths of what's going on. And it's, ve- it's five pages long. It's very yeah. short. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's interesting also is in this sort of world of women, Julia seems to be on the side of the men. You know, they have that conversation about men drawing maps and dreaming of their expeditions and looking for action. And she's, in her mind, you know, sketching out the map of the world. And, and Mrs. Fry and Miss Fry are thinking about all the people who've died in action, all the men lost. And uh, Julia's sort of dreaming of where she's going next. So she's in a way like those young men more than she is like these older women. I wonder if that's a, an element of youth, right? I'm, yeah. She does feel as though... She still has many options. She can change her life. She can she can go rejoin her lover in London across the world. 
and maybe she feels as aligned with the men because because of her youth, because that she she can do anything. I don't know. Uh, at the same time, she's being held in what she calls as an exile, against her wishes. Absolutely, yeah. against her wishes. Yes, yes. This is the the heat in the great fire. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> this uh, delayed longing for this uh, other person. Then they. I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end. I know you know already, but I, I want to tell the listeners of the New Yorker podcast. To, um, to go out and read the book. Go out, read the yeah. entire book and find out what happens at the yeah. very end. Yeah. Well, inter- you know, on that, on that front, um, we don't know anything in this story about Julia's lover, except that he's this sort of eminent older man in a, in a northern metropolis and that she wants to impress him. You know, in the book, we know he's a he's a British war hero who went to Japan to, in, in some way, investigate the after effects of Hiroshima, which is another great fire. Why do you think that Hazard omits that from the story? Or maybe she hadn't come up with it yet in, well, in yeah. 1990. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, Julia Bogle has a different name in the book. It's Helen yeah. Driscoll in the yeah. book. So I have a feeling it, she just hadn't gotten there yet. Possibly uh, this story was one of the first pieces of the larger book that occurred to her. I would love to know how she wrote her books because there are so many pieces of both uh, The Transit of Venus and The Great Fire that appeared in The New Yorker, whole, almost Mm -hmm. whole. Mm -hmm. And maybe she's one of those amazing writers who write um, short stories that become books. How they do that, I don't have any idea. Um, But... (laughs) I would love to have known how she did it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you ha- you have the sense that she knows more than she's telling us with this story. I mean, we also don't really know anything about Julia's parents or why they've brought her to New Zealand. Um, we know that they're renting, so that it's probably temporary. But very little else. It's it's interesting, you know, in that first letter, she writes that Miss Fry brings, brings a hush or a calm to Julia's house and that she's the best thing that happens. What do you think it's like when she's not there? Right. Well, I know the book, so I know how awful the parents are. But <laughs> um, and they're they're not great. But yeah, that's the the really gorgeous thing I think about Shirley Hazard and in her short stories that I've read also, as well as the the novels that I love so much. Um, she does. She leaves holes. Um, she's a very, she's a she's a writer of silences in a way that um, very few people are. And she's able to give an entire story without telling the entire story, right? She she it's just um, she tells stories through really charged moments. I think in this case, she this this story is about is a tone poem, or it's, it has more of a musical structure, and so you don't need all of those extraneous things. You don't need to know about the parents or the the sick brother that. Um, Helen in the book has, or, or even much about the lover. It's about the women and the, the world of these women in exile. Yeah. At the same time, you know about the peacocks and the, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> the, but, the yeah. duck egg-sized charcoals in the, in the fire and so on. So you, you get a lot of very precise description. I love the peacocks so much because she's talking about the, the male peacocks at the very end who fight themselves to death. Um, yeah. The doyen, uh, doyen peacocks are, are the men who, you know, beat each other up and are the beautiful ones, while the, the peahens are these done sort of yeah. drab little, you know, things that don't end up fighting, right? <laughs> right. right. They, right? They follow the, the male peacocks with the 
gorgeous tails. Yeah, I think that that was really interesting. That was a that was a beautiful sort of motif that went all the way through the the story. It's that moment at the end where Eleanor's thinking about them and thinking about their fighting. And Hazard writes, you know, she sat with idle hands and thought of matters pure or terrible that were known to her alone. Uh, is she thinking about her fiancé? What is she thinking about? Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're not given that insight into her mind. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that she has a secret. She has this, this life happening inside of her um, that is not accessible to other people, including the reader. And this is done in very close third. I mean, I, I know that Shirley Hazard could have zoomed in onto her thoughts, into her thoughts, um, if she wanted to, but she didn't. She gave her some privacy and some peace, and I think that that was really respectful <laughs> to the character <laughs> of Miss Fry. I think that was a very um, kind decision. Yeah. The authorial voice in the story is so interesting. You know, we start very much in Julia's mind, and by the end, this, this voice has pulled out so far that it can it's become so omniscient that it can tell us what picture falls off the wall in another house on another street um, and you sense this sort of omniscient eye pulling out in a way and and that's the moment where that voice refuses to tell us what Eleanor's thinking or, or to acknowledge it do you, do you feel that kind of distancing throughout the story? Yes, I love it. She does. She 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 scopes in really really tightly, and then she goes way far out. My favorite moment, actually, in this entire piece was when Julie is just walking in the street, and suddenly you see New Zealand in the way that is pointed toward the South Pole, and um, it becomes this. She's this tiny little freckle on the face <laughs> of a much larger global concern, which is another sort of underlying theme to the story, too. These these women are just small pieces in a much larger battle, um, and which wages over the epochs. You know, it's, it's not yeah. just this small moment, but, you know, men have always been going to war. Men have always been thinking that they were wanting to conquer things. Peacocks will always fight to the death and the new dwam will come up, right? And yet these women are sort of seeing everything both in in terms of their own particularities but also in terms of a larger historical vision of time. And I think that Shirley Hazard's so beautiful. This is the thing that, one of the things that I just love about her work is she's able to do this even within the scope of a sentence, right? She, she, she's just minute and then she goes, she blows outward into this giant expansive vision of humanity and of geologic and um, in global time. It's just amazing. And even her characters do the same thing. You know, they're talking about World War I and, and suddenly Julia says, well, it's in Thucydides, you know? <laughs> like it's right. It's right. The, exactly the same thing that was described in in ancient Greece, right? And that's I feel like that's kind of rare to to see characters in, and particularly in short stories, not only see themselves in their own travails, but also to be able to locate themselves in in a larger scope and a larger idea of time. I think that that's really beautiful, and very few people do it at all. Yeah. And then we get the the geological element with the earthquake. Why why do you think that uh, that earthquake happens? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, it happens it, at a very dramatic moment. You know, they're they're just talking about or thinking about the Sicilian expedition, the Somme, the Dardanelles, and and suddenly the old lady sort of throws up her hands toward the heavens, and there's been an earthquake. But it's a very gentle earthquake. It's, a very <laughs> it's just a tremor. It's almost a sweet <laughs> earthquake. It just knocks, you know, a couple of things over, and it it, it sends a picture to the floor, um, and then uh, they clear up the tea things. I mean, I think it's um, it's I think a motif of 
the way that there's always there's always a threat happening in um, in the lives of these women, and possibly it's the war that they keep circling back to, or the idea of war, the way that human civilization always embroils itself in war, and. In um, this particular moment, too, in the larger book as a whole, there is uh, th- this threat of war happening also, and um, the lover way off is is dealing with that threat as well. So, so I, I feel like this is always there's just um, within this very calm and very civilized moment, there's um, an understanding that everything could fall apart immediately. Uh, and that gives a, a sense of poignancy. I wasn't expecting the earthquake, though I should have been, because everything that is mentioned in the story comes back again. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> the light and dark tones are, it's almost a juxtaposition throughout the, the story. Um, the tea comes back again, the peacocks, the earthquakes, the beech trees, everything it just it repeats and repeats and sort of layers on, upon itself. So I wasn't expecting the earthquake, but when it came back, it felt just really satisfying. It was a big, <laughs> beautiful uh, reminder that um, chaos reigns even in civilization. Yeah. What do you think Julia takes away from this tea party? She's, you know, she walks home thinking I didn't enliven them. It was the other way around. They, en- you know, they enlivened me. And yet, at the same time, they're sort of suspended in this summer 35 years ago. Yeah. She has. She sees this sort of conflict between their, you know, merry laughs and and using the word sublime, and the way that they're sort of frozen. The, I feel as though this is more more like one of those moments that happen in your life um, when you know it's significant, but you don't know it's significant until much later. Um, that's that's how I read the uh, the way that it interacted with her consciousness at the moment Mm -hmm. because I feel like she will come back to this moment and not know until she is possibly Miss Fry's age why it was so important Mm. and there is something to be said and I and I hate doing this because I know that it's a complete fallacy but uh, (laughs) Helen Driscoll in The Great Fire has a lot of uh, similarities to Shirley Hazard herself in her life and the way that she's described. And I'm not projecting this onto Shirley Hazard, but it's possible that um, she had these these moments where yeah. that sort of reverberated like small tremors, small earthquakes throughout her life and that came up into into her fiction. Yeah. Well, Hazard was also her father moved moved the family to New Zealand when she was a teenager. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there, there's... Something of, of her experience in here. There has to be. Sure. Yeah. What John Banville reviewed The Great Fire for the New York Times. He wrote, Shirley Hazard has a blithe disdain for postmodern pieties. Her fictions are played out on the elevated ground of high romance, although she's far from being what is generally thought of as a romantic writer. She's unique among moderns in that irony is confined to her style and not to the work's content. Do you think that's true? I do. I yeah. do. And I'm so glad that I heard that because I, <laughs> I, I knew it intellectually, but I not, you know, I didn't feel it. But uh, yes, I think she has a great deal of irony in her style, but she is very much uh, a romantic in any I mean, in both senses. I mean, she's she's a romantic because she writes um, about romantic things. I mean, both The Transit of Venus and the Great Fire are, are deeply romantic books, yeah. but also she she pays great attention to the natural world, and and um, she's really really good at writing about 
the way that landscape changes a person's perception of t- a time and space. She's excellent at that. And also, you know, for a book published in, in 2003, this does not feel like a book published in 2003. Uh, you know, it feels from a different era in a way. It does. I wonder if it's because by the time that it was published, it, there were more than 50 years between the events in the in the story and um, the publication of the book. I mean, it was a half a century yeah. also. So it felt, you know, it felt lived, but also a little bit as though it's a historical fiction. Yeah. And by the time it was published, she was, uh, Ms. Hazard was Mrs. Fry's age. Right. Or close. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Getting close. So you... you mentioned earlier that you think of her as kind of a descendant of Henry James, and other people have compared her to Doris Lessing, Margaret Drabble. Where where do you sort of put her in the contemporary fiction world? There's a part of me that wants to keep her quiet because um, I'm, I just love her so much. <laughs> but, I <don't, laughs> but I think most people should read The Transit of Venus. In fact, um, I looked for my copy the other day, but I'd given it out, and I usually keep a couple of copies on hand. So every single person who's ever come to my house goes away with a copy of The Transit of Venus. Um, I think she's just she's profoundly underappreciated. She, um, she should be read more. Her stories are very good, but I think those two novels in particular can be reread and reread. You know, I, I think I like to go back to both of them when I do have a hunger for the r- romantic stories, right, mm-hmm. without a lot of postmodern irony. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> but also beautiful prose and um, prose that really challenges the reader because she she's not afraid of using abstractions or the passive voice. I mean, she, or incredibly long sentences. She's very, very clear as a writer, but she's also, mm-hmm. um, she demands a lot. And I love that. Do you think there are shadows of her work in any of your books? I would love for that to be true. I <laughs> hope so. Yeah, <laughs> that would make me very happy. <laughs> well, thank you, Lauren. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Shirley Hazard, who died in 2016 at the age of 85, was the author of two short story collections and four novels, including The Transit of Venus and The Great Fire, which won the National Book Award, the Miles Franklin Award, and the William Dean Howells Medal. She published more than two dozen pieces of fiction in The New Yorker, beginning in 1961 when she was 29. Lauren Groff is the author of the story collection Delicate Edible Birds and three novels, including Arcadia, which was published in 2012, and Fates and Furies, which came out in 2015. She's been publishing stories in The New Yorker since 2011. You can download more than 120 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Lauren Groff reads a story by Alice Munro, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. In honor of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast's 10th anniversary this year, we're asking you to choose your favorite episode for re-release in December. Please weigh in on our Facebook page or at newyorker.com slash podcasts and let us know your pick. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of newyorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>